Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. One quick announcement before we start the show today. Human Race is thrilled to announce that we are now a part of the Panoply network of podcasts. This means you can find us everywhere now, not just on iTunes, but also on Stitcher or wherever else you might get your podcasts. So spread the word. Now for the show. A couple of months ago, producer Brian Dalek went to observe something like a ritual sacrifice. The victims, some of the most dedicated and crazy ultra runners in the world. Brian, tell us about it. Yeah, Rachel, I traveled to a small town called Wartburg, Tennessee, in a place called Frozen Head State Park. And I was there for the Barkley Marathons. Marathons, plural. Right. I got to the park on this damp April morning, and there had been a thunderstorm overnight. By the afternoon, the clouds had scattered, and runners and their crews, they stayed at a campground inside the park. The setup was cozy, lots of little campfires. At this point, I was expecting dread from the runners, but what I saw was this intense focus. In fact, we should probably mention right now, whatever your preconceived notions are of an ultramarathon, this race is not that. The Barkley Marathons is a 100-mile race made up of five 20-mile loops through Frozen Head State Park. Or at least that might be what you'd read on Barkley's official website if the race had one. It doesn't. The real Barkley is a little harder to pin down. Runners believe the course might actually be closer to 130 miles. There are no course markers, and GPS is not allowed. Again, this is not your typical ultra. And I ran into some runners before the start, and they gave me a glimpse into how competitors navigate the course. We follow written directions. There are six and a half pages of understand that this tree and that tree touch each other ever so slightly on the northeast corner of my aunt's nose or something. One map that you get to copy onto your own map, and... Uh, yeah, you're kind of on your own. you got map, compass, your written directions, and... And all of these weird rituals, Rachel, they're thanks to one man. His name, Gary Cantrell. You know how we ask for something every year? Yeah. And one year it was a license plate from your home state or country. Mm-hmm. And we hung them all up and said, whoa, that's kind of cool. We should just keep doing that. So how many, how many do you have now? When I get done, you can count them. Okay. <laughs> At the race, Gary is the scorekeeper and a sort of jovial punisher, but he's also the reason the race exists, and in the very peculiar way that it does. 
1977, the man who assassinated Martin Luther King Jr., James Earl Ray, he escaped from Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary in none other than Frozen Head State Park. James was missing for 55 hours. He traveled an unremarkable eight miles. Gary is an original ultra runner from Tennessee who knows this park inside and out. As he thought about the failed escape, Gary figured he could have covered at least 100 miles. And the groundwork was laid. In 1986, Gary founded the Barkley Marathons at the park. This race is just so brutal that less than 1% of all entrants actually completes Barkley. Less than 1%. And yet, people come from all over the world to try their hand at this race. I'm Rachel Swaby. And I'm Brian Dalek. And this week on Human Race, an event designed for brutal, bloody failure. This year was the 30th anniversary of the Barkley Marathons. And in all those years, and around a thousand people taking the starting line, there have only been 14 finishers. Why would runners subject themselves to slashed legs, bruised egos, and a ton of hurt? Not to mention days of sleeplessness, dehydration, and anguish, with little hope of finishing. Today, we are going to find out. The whole thing is designed to destabilize. There's no true start time, Gary decides on a time to get going, and he tells no one. Here's one Barkley runner on how this particular ritual works. Whenever Gary decides to start the race, which could be any time between midnight tonight and noon tomorrow, uh, he blows a conch shell. And when the conch shell blows, we as runners have one hour to be standing at the gate ready to go. So 2 a.m., fair game. 11 a.m., fair game. All night you're just waiting for that sound. And if my night was any indication, few were sleeping soundly. I thought I had heard the damn thing at like 11.45, and it was probably just a nearby owl. This year, Gary decided to blow the shell at 9.42 a.m. With an hour to go, there's a flurry of activity at the campground. Each race participant comes with some semblance of a support team. Support teams, they help runners pull on their gear and make final adjustments to their packs. Runners are slathering on sunscreen, eating as much as they possibly can. And until they return, it's the last help they'll get from their crew. Let's get our runners accumulated here. Then it's time to head to the starting line. When they get there, there's no gun or starting flag. In a beaten denim jacket and a floppy hat, Gary raises a cigarette to his mouth, strikes a match, and when he inhales that first breath of smoke, runners take off very slowly. The allowance for mistakes is almost nothing. You can make a tiny mistake if you're really good and make up for it, but mostly if you screw up something, you're dead. Here's why. The course is nutty. It's uh, multiple loops around the perimeter of the Frozen Head State Park and Natural Area. This is Ed Furtaw, a Barkley veteran. He was watching this year. And it's a, it's a combination of some trails, some off-trails, and even some roads. 
but most of it is either on trails or just off trail, just bushwhacking on mountainsides where there is no trail at all. When we go off trail, it's usually just to do a straight beeline right up or down a mountain. Let's talk about the climbs for a minute. If you were to complete all five loops of the course, which, of course, few people ever do, that's 60,000 feet of climbs. How much is 60,000 feet? Well, Mount Everest's peak is 29,000 feet. So Barclay's elevation gains are double Everest. And the course is five loops, so all that elevation you climb, you've got to come down it too. Imagine how brutal that must be on your quads. And unlike many other ultras, there are parts of the race that are so steep, running is just out of the question. Not to mention, as Ed said, the off-trail requirements and total reliance on a compass and paper map. Navigation demands an entirely different skill set than the typical ultra runner. Let's check in with the typical ultra runner. My name's Starchy Grant. I'm from Oakland, California, and this is my first time running with Barkley. I sat down with Starchy on Friday night, the night before the race, and I wanted to know about his plan for survival. My strategy is to convince myself I can do all of it, uh, but not to, not to let myself get too crushed when, you know, whatever reality happens to be sets in. I, I mean, I think the main thing is to make sure that I'm not spending too much time uh, out in the trail in the dark trying to figure out which sentence I need to be paying attention to. Right. Because running in the dark is inevitable. And as if the course weren't challenging enough, the checkpoint system Gary designed can play out like a treasure hunt with a crumpled old map, especially under the cover of darkness. It works like this. At various points throughout the official course, Gary places 13 books in plastic bags. When runners reach the book, they tear out the page that corresponds to their bib number. Runners get a new race number each loop, so they don't come up empty-handed on subsequent loops. So Starchy was number 65 on his first loop. His goal? Rip out page 65 from all 13 books. These books can be in places like the trunk of a tree. Reliably, once a runner finishes one loop, they pull out a fistful of wrinkled pages and dump them on Gary's makeshift podium. Number 67, Ed Thomas. Ed Thomas. Yes, sir. I didn't lose any. All right, you going straight out or you need to Um, About maybe 15, 20 minutes. Then I'm going up. Thank you so much. It was the most enjoyable thing I've ever done in my entire life. You got fruit. (laughs) You got fruit. Of course I'm lying. (laughs) One thing that surprised me, the first few runners to complete loop one came back looking really fresh. They were chatty and their shins were only mildly bloody. Their crew feeds them, slathered their feet with lubricant and band-aids. They would get dry socks. And then they're off again as long as they left camp before the time limit. But there is still no sign of starchy. Touch the gate. 9.36.13. Not so bad for the first time. It was easier than you expected. Oh Yes, of course. So easy. (laughs) (laughs) 
But they never was mad uh, against you, you know. Not yet. No, never. Tonight. No. I choose it on now, just you, a great experience. Are you going to take a break or are you just going to head straight back well, out? I think I will go straight back now. No, no time to, to go to the rest for sure. <laughs> the time limit changes with ambition. If runners are aiming for the full five loops, they have 12 hours to complete each loop. If they're aiming for only three loops, runners have 13 hours and 20 minutes. It was a strong start this year. In fact, most years someone quits in the first few hours. They walk right back to the beginning. Either the mountaineering, the weather, or the lack of course knowledge is too much for them. This year, the first runner to declare defeat actually completed loop one. But he could suffer no more. He was a competitor from France named Dominique. And how did he look? Considerably rougher, but he was also really relieved. his reason though to stop. It's not human. <laughs> Every time a runner quits, a Barkley volunteer plays taps. Because runners are tapping out. It's like a little release ceremony. They're free, but also they failed. And this year, the second loop was in the dark. Most people set out a second time around 8 or 9 p.m. 28 of the 41 starters made it out for loop 2, which means 13 runners did not. Starchy was among them. Over a dozen people had already declared defeat. Our newcomer, Starchy Grant from Oakland, however... The good news, Rachel, he set a record. The bad news is, like most records at Barkley... It wasn't a positive one. Oh, man. Tell me more. <laughs> Here's what happened. So Starchy was out on the course. His directions folded up in his pack for when he needed them. Remember, he'd spent the evening before trying to memorize the route. So he's going up the very first hill called Bird Mountain. It's a tough incline, but it's the easiest on the course. He's following, as you should, some Barkley veterans. Bird Mountain has like 14 switchbacks, so he's going back and forth. And he notices his shoelace is coming untied. Now, Rachel, out of everything that could happen to you when you start Barkley, a shoelace seems like a tiny thing. But after he, you know, fixes it, he looks up, and every other runner is gone. Starchy is already lost. Then I made a... a uh... More of a rookie mistake, uh, definitely a Barkley rookie mistake, which was instead of just uh, backtracking to find my way to where I knew to be on course, I tried to improvise, and uh, I ended up spending five hours between the first two books. The one thing that I really wasn't prepared for uh, was just how hard the navigation would be. I think my, my training was good, but... Uh, you know, even though I thought I'd, I'd studied the map well and studied some good tips about the course, uh, it, it wasn't enough. Ugh, that sucks. 
yeah, 10 or 11 hours in, he met up with two other lost souls out on the course, and the three of them, they stuck together, which is nice. Starchy really wanted to find all 13 books and complete the first loop. And I understand why. I mean, that kind of feels like the bare minimum for participants. And he did it, kind of. To complete the first loop, it took him just under 32 hours. That is so brutal. So Stargy finished the one loop distance, but he completely blows the time. Yeah, so he comes in, he's tired, but he's proud. And I talked to him in the campground after he took a much-deserved day of rest. The experience of the Barkley for you the first time, something you said the other day you've wanted to do for a long time, you know, was it, did it live up to expectations in a sense? Uh, it did. It definitely did. Um, and then some. <laughs> it, it, In a good way or a bad way? <laughs> and it just kept living up to them. Uh, finding the 13th book uh, at the top of the, the climb that we call Big Hell, uh, that felt like as much of an accomplishment as a lot of the 100-mile runs I've finished. Uh, that, that was just an unforgettable experience. <laughs> I didn't come here expecting to set a course record. Um, uh, I don't know if it's it's exactly a positive to hold the course record for slowest successful loop, but I'm proud. (laughs) And naturally, as a lot of these people, he's hoping he can do it again next year. So he fails, royally, gets a sort of unofficial record for failing, and then he wants to redeem himself and go again. Yeah, see, there's something more going on here, though. Because for as nutty as Barkley is, these runners choose this fate. Willingly. Now, I wasn't out on the course. If I tried, I'd still be lost after the first couple hours. But people who have done it, they'll tell you something happens to you out there. To people on the outside, it looks simple. It's 32 hours of frustration and pain and being lost. But for these runners, it's something else. To get deeper into that something else, I suggest we pick up with someone who actually made it past loop one. 12 and 13. So it was easier than you expected. There's less briars. The course navigation was a lot harder than I expected. Oh, so you need a few minutes to get restocked and head back out? Yep. All right, you're looking great. The second one's easier than the first one, too. Oh, good. I present to you Jenilyn Eaton. In 2014, she summited 200-plus mountains, and in 2015, she decided to stop counting. She's that good. She's done well in more than a dozen ultras across the country. Jenilyn makes it out on Loop 2. Now, Loop 2 is where people start dropping out left and right. And I'm not talking newbies here. I'm talking Barkley veterans. Maybe they couldn't find a book out there, or they became dehydrated or sick along the way. Now, 41 people started the race. Eight go out for Loop 2. Including Jenilyn. That's only 20% of the original field. Jenilyn was also a Barkley newbie this year. Similar to Starchy, she found the navigation frustrating. I show up and toe the line to find out that Barkley is really like doing a crossword puzzle in Braille, and only the vets have the key card of the alphabet and it's, it's there's just there's you know and you're like chasing them like what's the letter b again four down does it start with b 
Like there's there's no other way to explain it. Like there's, you know, you have to. I mean, there's a handful of books that the only directions are, you know, you go part way up a ridge and the book's in a dead tree. Well, in that area, there's four ridges coming off the same hillside and there's like a hundred dead trees. So this is great. <laughs> she thinks she'll have no chance without a Barkley veteran. So early on, she teamed up with a runner named Heather who had gone through two previous Barkley attempts. But on the second loop, the pair falls behind schedule. I was like, what are we going to do? Like, what is your plan? Because, you know, our options for quitting were, were hitting different points, different ways to come back. And I didn't know how far she was going to take it with both of us knowing we're out. And coming up um, after book six, I was like, how long till Ratjaw? And she's like, three, three and a half hours. And I'm thinking my head last time from Ratjaw took us 410. Ratjaw is an area of the course that's thick with briars. Runners come back with their shins and quads completely destroyed. It's like they've been through a slasher film. It's also one of the stretches on the race that appears on the course year after year. It's a Barkley favorite. And I have six hours until the cutoff. And she's like, you have a chance. Go. And I was like... Okay. And I just, I left. Now on her own, Jenilyn kicks into high gear. I mean, it was five hours and 40 minutes of really hard running. I ran up Ratjaw. I ran up Big Howl. I ran up all these climbs. And it was, it was a lot of hope. Because <laughs> I, I would have been really mad at myself if I had just said, you know what, I timed out and quit. And then I got down to the prison later and, um... Yes, there's a prison on the course, the one James Earl Ray escaped when it was open. And I asked one of the guys that had seen a bunch, I was like, hey, tell my crew I'm coming, but I might only have, like, two minutes to spare, so lay my stuff out. I'm at the campground and her support team is pacing around. She has less than one hour left. No sign of her. Runners typically try to give themselves enough time on the end of their loop so that they can refuel at the campground. That means changing into new clothes and bandaging up blistered feet, even to take a nap. But with only a few minutes left on the loop two time limit, any break at all at this point would be a luxury. Her crew knows that if Jenilyn comes in, she'll have to check in quick and get out on loop three ASAP. And then, about 10 minutes before she's disqualified, a roar from the bottom of the camp. I look up and I see someone with a bright pink shirt, a trucker cap, and she's trotting up the dirt road. Jenilyn makes it. She does indeed. Gary counts her pages and her crew and the camp, they get to work. And all of a sudden, it's like a NASCAR pit crew. I got 10 minutes to get out of here. Mind if I start while you count my pages? You can if you want. She knows your skirt and your other sportiva shirt. I need a lot of food. Here, take this right now. And is there blue Gatorade? Yes. Because yes. I'm I'll like somewhat dehydrated for a while. Does someone have water? Just clean water? Water, water right here. Here's your shake. Thank you. What are you looking for? Your skirt? I'll get your skirt. If you need a headlamp, do you need a new headlamp? I'm in batteries. Because I have a charged headlamp. And the battery should be right in here. 
we have everything organized in a suitcase for her. That's DJ, one of her two-person support crew. Um, so all her food that she takes with her, um, headlamps, change clothes. Um, you know, she came in, she changed shoes, socks. We re-greased her feet, um, changed her pants. Uh, she grabbed a different jacket. Um, but one thing that we did hours ago was, like, she likes fried egg sandwiches. That's what she likes to eat. Um, they sit well with her. So I made fried egg sandwiches uh, a couple hours ago and wrapped them in foil, kept them warm. We got three minutes. I'd been out of food for about three hours, three or four hours. And so I was really, really hungry when I came in, especially running that hard. So I was, I was starving. And um, so I basically just ate. Uh, I ate the frosting off of, like, three or four pink sugar cookies I had mashed potatoes I had broth I had a peanut butter Twix they had a grilled cheese with egg to take with me Jenilyn's crew pulls her up off the ground they push her over to Gary at the podium he hands her her new race bib and somehow, Rachel, she's out on loop three. Jenilyn had so little time that she headed out with her shoes still untied. I think someone told me I have the record for leaving with the least amount of time to spare. I think I had like 12 seconds until I couldn't leave. Such an incredible comeback. I guess my question is, why even go out for a third loop? What is it in your mind that kicks in after 26 hours and 40 minutes of hell and says, you know, how about one more go? Look, Jenilyn is no slouch. She's an achiever. On top of mountain climbing and all of her ultra races, she's a single mother of two boys. It, it just pissed her off that Barkley was getting the best of her. I had trained so hard to push myself, and I didn't get to because Barkley was pushing me in ways that I didn't expect. It wasn't wasn't a physical test. Look, it wasn't all the climbs or the briars. Jenilyn, she had trained for that hardcore. It was all the other things about Barkley that were just getting to her, and she just had this burst of success. She wanted to do three loops, so she went out for three loops. But no doubt, the race started to wear her down. Um, went through my bag and I realized I didn't have a headlamp. And so I went down and grabbed book two and decided that I really just wanted to go up Ratchaw. Um, Ratchaw in reverse is the longest climb of the race. It's twice as long to do it on loop three and four than it is on loops one and two. Another thing that throws people off at Barkley You run the first two loops in one direction. And then Gary has you run the third and the fourth loop in reverse. So however comfortable you've gotten on the route, loop three is chaos once again. So as we've said, the navigation, that's messing with her the most. So she pulls out her compass. She's exhausted from two nights of sleep deprivation. And she accidentally sets her bearing for the wrong hill. And it's going to get dark at this point. Like she said, she doesn't have a headlamp, but someone she runs into lets her borrow theirs. She finally gets back on track, but Jenilyn has lost at least an hour. She gets to Rat Jaw, 
climbs up, and that's all that she's got. She takes the so-called candy-ass trail back to camp to claim her Barkley failure. So there's this really awesome picture of Jenilyn at the finish line that she posted on her blog. Yeah, I'm, so it's dark, and she's wearing this pink beanie. And the craziest thing is that she's got this huge smile on her face. And it's just not the face that I would expect to see after someone has been out on the race that long. It's just It, it just feels surprising every time I see it. But Barkley veterans are not surprised. The appeal of this absolutely insane race, as well as someone who's actually finished it. Now we go all in. What happens to runners on Loop 5? And why Barkley is so surprisingly appealing to ultra runners? For that, I'd like to introduce you to... I'm Andrew Thompson. I finished the Barkley in 2009. One of only 14 individuals ever to finish it. But it took him several attempts to get there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. His first try was all the way back in 1997. I just knew I'd always come back as soon as I came here the first time. That year, he completed the first loop, then quit during the second. And Andrew is a beast. At one time, he held the record for the fastest time on the Appalachian Trail. And get this, he's run Barkley 12. 12 times! But to talk about the fifth loop, we need to go back to Andrew's 2005 Barkley. He hadn't yet claimed a Barkley finish, despite several years of attempts. In 2005, he was on track. He paired up with a friend, and the two of them had completed four loops together. Which is great, except for that fifth loop, Gary splits you up. Another charming Barkley wrinkle. Can't make that fifth loop too easy, you know? In camp, his friend takes a nap before going back out. Andrew decides to take off without sleep. Andrew goes clockwise. His friend, when he wakes up, goes counterclockwise. And I left here, and I was, you know, full clarity, totally strong. Um, Loop 5 is sort of deceiving because... For whatever reason, it always seems like the weather's really good. And so now you have this nice bluebird day, and it's it's nice and clear, and the birds are singing, and it sort of lulled me into this weird thought that I was just in my backyard, you know, on a regular trail run, you know? That's good, right? He's getting into the zone. But what Andrew is talking about is a little different than the zone. I was, uh you know, confused and and little trails turned into driveways and rocks turned into houses and all of a sudden I was like a garbage man and like a landscaper and I'm out there picking up branches and, you know, still sort of moving along the course but beginning to lose focus on what's going on. At that point, Andrew says he's making good progress, but in his head, it's a complete loss of time and space. And I sat down, and everything just vanished. I had I forgot about the Barkley, I forgot about the people, I forgot about Loop 5, and I was just sitting up in the woods, seeing all kinds of visuals and cars driving by, and... Um, 
if my mother would have walked up to me at that point, I would have looked at her like she was a falling leaf. <laughs> so I made it to the water drop, which is just up around the garden spot. Gary drops a few jugs of water throughout the course, which runners may or may not be able to find. The garden spot is always about the halfway point of the loop. And it's notoriously tricky for runners. There's a semicircle of exposed hillsides and over a dozen dirt roads that intersect. Runners need to use the dirt road, but none of them are on the map. It's here, Andrew says. You know, my feet must have been hot or whatever, so I just started dumping entire gallons into my, into my feet, just into my, like the top of my shoe, like gallon after gallon after gallon. And then I got up, and there was this big, deep mud puddle that's always there. It's there today, and I stood in the mud puddle for like an hour and just sort of squished around. And Oh, man, this just hurts to listen to. So Andrew's been awake for well over 48 hours at this point completed somewhere between 100 to 115 miles and approximately 48,000 feet of elevation gain. So there's no research that looks at this race and its toll on the body. But there's a fair amount of research on what happens when you stay awake for extended periods of time. Ignore the physical challenge completely. And studies show that after people pull an all-nighter, reacting takes three times as long. Sleep deprivation messes with Everything from your metabolism to your ability to process new memories. Concentrating on a task becomes more challenging. The ability to navigate with a map and compass, forget that, it gets all muddied. So everything Five Loopers have learned about the course, it becomes infinitely harder to recall. Add on to that 30 to 50 hours of intense physical activity. People competing in an Ironman competition can burn 10,000 calories in 10 hours. At Barkley, on one loop, you can burn an astronomical amount of calories, and runners often don't pack enough food. The glycogen stores in your muscles and liver, they become depleted, which means both your body and your brain feel maxed out. Your body switches to burning off fat stores as well as breaking down muscle tissue. So your muscles are destroyed and not repairing. Add in dehydration, which makes you feel even more exhausted. So let's do a little tally, shall we? Tissue repair, immune function, kidney and liver function, balance and muscle strength, they're all negatively impacted. You can't tap the energy in your muscles, and the hallucinations that Andrew is having, they're signaling his body to stop. Like, hey buddy, Really, you should stop. Sleep should happen every day for a reason. For Andrew, all of these systems are going haywire. Finally, he, he just goes on autopilot, but he's still not lucid. Without even realizing it, he starts following Quitter's Road, which is up near Garden Spot. Quitter's Road, as the name suggests, is a shortcut back to the starting line. And so I'm just walking down and down and down. But at this point, it's dark, and I'm still wandering. I have no concept of the Barclay whatsoever. And I come around up up around this corner here, where, right when you cross this stream, and it says Big Cove Branch, and this is Big Cove Branch camp, Campground. That's where all the racers stay. It's near the start and end. And as soon as I saw the words Big Cove, I remembered that I was at Barkley and then I remembered that I was on loop five and then the gravity of the moment was just surreal
He remembers he was just on that last loop. And he realizes that he had just walked himself back to the campground before completing it. As disappointed as Andrew was, he did take something from that major crash. He remembered what Gary told him when he tapped out in 2005. In a way that only Gary can, he looked at me and he said, When you left here, you looked like you were in total control. And that I've never forgotten that, and I never will. And that was my mantra when I came back in 2009. Stay in control, stay in control. And, uh, yeah, that was a big moment in my Barkley experience. Four years later, he finally completed the Barkley Marathons. Which pretty much gives him entry for life. He was back this year for the first time in several years. His hope was to do all five loops again. He didn't even do two loops. Recently, I called Andrew to ask him what's drawn him to this crazy race for so many years and why he keeps doing it. It's this little bite-sized, like, genuine adventure. And you can go into uh, what me and my good friends call the um, pain cave. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you, you can't really do that anywhere else in such a short period of time. So the the pain yeah. cave is what you want to achieve? Like that is the goal, yeah, is the, the pain cave? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the secret about the pain cave is it's not really painful. It's kind of like this zen place of clarity. There's really, there's no other time in life when you really do distill it down to exactly what you're doing. You're focusing on just what you're doing, and if you mess it up, you're out. You're not thinking about your kids. You're not thinking about your job. You're not thinking about writing a letter to your mom. You're just doing Barkley. Andrew also said that the real challenge at Barkley, it isn't physical. The physical part is, to me, sort of like a box check. Either you are or you aren't. Right. <laughs> and once you hit the start line, then it's all mental. It's always some sort of abstract breakdown, like, you know, you know, I was hallucinating or, you know, I got lost. It's at that point, you know, deep into Barkley, it's, it's never physical. It's not like all of a sudden some guy gets blisters, you know, late in loop four. And that's the reason he quit. <laughs> right. And the, and the mental part is sort of like a willingness thing. It's if someone can't go there. If someone's not willing to just flip that switch and go there, they're never going to finish Barkley. It doesn't matter how much training they do. Only one person was able to flip that switch this year. Three-time Barkley finisher Jared Campbell, and that is a record. He completed the Barkley's five loops in 59 hours and 32 minutes. The only catch about this switch thing is that maybe a runner has flipped the switch. Maybe they're 100% determined to get to that fifth loop. But with tricky navigation and changes in the loop direction and hard-to-find books, the race is trying, and trying really hard, to flip that switch back. To introduce doubt and confusion and uncertainty. But even if the race does defeat you, maybe it doesn't matter. So Andrew, he keeps showing up every few years, and he's only finished once. 
And even in failure, Jenilyn, in her first attempt, she got more out of the race than she was expecting. Barkley pushes the limits of human potential. And I think that was the initial draw, um, along with the fact that no woman had completed it, added the intrigue. Um, as I started training, Barkley training in itself became a big beacon for me um, with a lot of things going on in my life. It was, a, it was a coping strategy. It helped me hold my life together to have to stick to a training plan. And a lot of those Barkley memories and the massive community support and kindness of friends and others that came through during that training. And um, it was all of those, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week out slogging in the snow by myself or with friends that gave me time to reflect and to um, really challenge every motivation I've ever had regarding running and come to terms with the fact that I run because I have to, not because I want to. Not many people understand what that's like, but at Barkley, everyone does. Gary has been observing that drive for 30 years. So few people make it into Loop 5, just stepping past the gate and have us ring the bell. Among these people, you become a legend. This episode of Human Race was produced by me, Brian Dalek, and me, Rachel Swaley. We're edited by Audrey Quinn with help from Christine Fennessy. Additional production help from Mervyn Deganos. Big thanks to Pam Bede, the nutrition consultant from Swim, Bike, Run, Eat, and postdoc Bryce Mander from UC Berkeley Sleep and Neuroimaging Lab for their help on this story. Our theme music is by Danny Koch. David Willey is the editor-in-chief of Runner's World and the editor-in-chief of this podcast. If you'd like to see pictures of this year's Barkley Marathons, you can find them on runnersworld.com slash audio. Next week, we have an unbeatable record, roadkill, ice cream cravings, and the kindness of strangers all over the U.S. You won't want to miss it. 